Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Jazz Violin Podcast. Uh, this is episode 16, and today I am chatting with Daniel Weltlinger. Usually this is the point where I start yabbering on about sponsors, um, but I don't have a sponsor anymore. All my uh, sponsor deals, so to speak, have uh, have ended. So now I'm literally just sponsored by whoever feels kind enough or interested enough in uh, becoming a patron on Patreon. So if uh, I haven't, well, if you've skipped past my Patreon chat before, maybe I'll do a little one now. Not the same as last time, because last time I really spoke a long time about it and it I can understand it can be quite boring because basically it's just me saying like, hey, uh, can you give me some money? But what I'm asking for is for you to give me some money. Um, to be a patron of the podcast, you pledge a small amount of money every month and that gives you access to various little extras. At the moment, the main extra is a uh, additional, additional episode of the podcast once a month, a little short one, and it's just me going through some old episodes and chatting through some of the things that have really uh, hit home to me or helped me practice, and just chatting about my journey with learning to play jazz on the violin. Uh, and I think it's quite insightful for anyone who's learning jazz violin or anyone who is probably mainly for people who are just beginning uh, that journey or who are just starting out with the whole thing, uh, learning to improvise and things like that. Uh, yeah, so I think it's like $5 a month and you get access to that once a month. Uh, the other thing you get is the warm and fuzzy feeling knowing that you're helping me keep this podcast running. Um, and what, what more would you want? Don't know. Anyway, so I'm going to move on to my guest today, uh, Australian violinist, Daniel Weltlinger, and I know Daniel for, from the annual Django Reinhardt Festival in Samoa, uh, Samoa sur Seine, just outside of Paris. I met him there maybe about five, six years ago, and I see him pretty much every year there, and we, we jam and hang out, and he's a really interesting guy, a really interesting musician. He has uh, a lot of interesting things to say about music and and how it's played and how it can be played um he's also a great composer and has just come out with a new album which he talks about at length on the podcast so without further ado uh, please give it up for daniel weltlinger okay so just maybe we'll just start from I always do this but just start from the start with like how you started how you started playing music on the violin well um for me uh the first the first inspiration for me was unquestionably my grandfather this this yeah. is actually a theme that I'm uh discussing a lot at the moment because I've made an album to do with my grandfather's violin which he always played to me yeah uh, from before i could talk he was uh, always playing playing this instrument um yeah always serenading <laughs> everybody who would come to his apartment yeah 
he'd always have like a bottle, <laughs> a bottle of Johnny Walker Black or Perno or Schlilovitz there, and he would uh, serenade, you know, like my mom, or yeah. friends who came over, and of course his grandchildren. Yeah, there's seven years between me and my brother, but we both grew up with um with him playing violin, especially me, of course. Okay, yeah. And so um I had, I had, I had the inspiration to play violin. I think from before I could talk. Yeah. And um. What actually happened was uh, when I was three years old, I heard the Star Wars <laughs> soundtrack <laughs> on the film and I fell in love with the music and I went to the piano. Yeah. This is a story my parents told me. I went to the piano and played the theme and I'd never played the piano before. Oh, wow. Right. And so my parents wanted me to play piano. <laughs> and yeah. I said, no, I want to play violin. Yeah. And I was five when I started. Two years later, I started with violin, basically. Okay. Okay, so like you started by by playing the well you started by just showing an interest or showing like a like a good musical ear basically yeah yeah and how did you who how did you start the violin you, did you start lessons with your grandfather or did you start no i never learned that people often ask was i taught by my grandfather it was more just pure inspiration it remains the same to this day i just think when you're when you're a very tiny child and you're brought up with music uh, either from family or from outside influences and you and you get the bug yeah and that just sticks with you. It's as simple as that. So I always had this influence, whether I realized it or not, mm -hmm. from a very young age. I had a teacher for about a year who did some Suzuki, but I was never in that system. Like I, I, okay. I think I, was, I think I was from the beginning, for whatever reason, <laughs> on my own thing, even from mm -hmm. the age of five. Okay. And uh, that that lasted about a year, and then. Um, Basically, I had a succession of Russian teachers. Okay. As, and especially when I was eight years old, I had a teacher named Sam Pajarsky who, um, who recognized that I had a natural ability on my instrument, a natural musical inclination. Mm -hmm. And he sent me to like a youth orchestra. There's a youth orchestra organization in Australia called mm -hmm. Sydney Youth Orchestra with lots of different orchestras for young kids and older people, like yeah. older students. And I went to weekend classes doing classical music from the age of eight till like 17. Mm -hmm. And I went to another teacher when I was about 12, and I had basically the same teacher from this point on till the end of my um, uh, studies at the conservatorium, okay. at the age of 21 or so, mm -hmm. okay. or 23, sorry. Yeah. Uh, so your grand your grandfather never taught you didn't teach you never taught you anything, but he was just your he was your inspiration, and that no, absolutely okay, definitely, and, and that that inspired you to do you think that that was what like gave you a like a inclination to to keep playing definitely because you'd seen because you know like I feel like a lot of the time people are kids are made to you know start playing the violin or something like that but they don't even know what a violin is and they just they just know what their their like primary school violin teacher does mm which might not be that amazing, you know, they might not be an amazing player or, or a performer in any, you know, and then parents are expecting them to just sort of excel and become a violinist. And it need, you know, you need something like that, like your grandfather, don't you? To, or not always your grandfather, but you know, you need some, something at least to show you like, look, this is, this is what it is. <laughs> I think important is the love of music. I think yeah. that's, the, I think that's the, or the love of what you do. It's not yeah. just music. It's a general thing. I think, that's very important. And my grandfather was not an amazing violin player. He was a semi-professional musician. Yeah. He was an engineer, actually, mm. in terms of profession. 
But his story is quite amazing. The violin which I've got of his, I've got two. One which I played for 20 years, which yeah. mum bought him at an auction mm-hmm. many, many years ago, very cheap, mm-hmm. which is a bohemian violin. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> and this violin was his brother's. Uh, his brother was a, he was a violin virtuoso in yeah. Hungary. And he died in 1918 from the Spanish flu virus that was, that right. killed many millions of people. My grandfather had the violin and um, in 1920 he left Hungary because of, uh, anti-Semitism and a lot of problems um, in Hungary. And he, with two friends, they first day walked across the mountains to from Budapest to um, Vienna. Uh-huh. And they saw a Hitler march. Mm. And Hitler was actually in Vienna in 1920, October. <clears throat> My grandfather's 18. And then they went from Vienna. They fled Vienna. They went across all these different countries. No one would let them in because they had no identification papers or passports or anything. Yeah. He had this instrument with him. This was this Hungarian student violin. He he took it with him as a work tool, yeah. something to make some money with. So I have a photo of him with his violin in a in a band with trumpet and bass and everything yeah. in the thirties. They ended up in France, and he lived in France for eighteen years in Marseille. And it, basically, it's a long story where the violin went to. Ended up in North Africa, Morocco. Went, ended up in Australia. Today it's in Berlin. But I think, um, like he basically, like he played uh, songs. I grew up with. I grew up with, uh, I guess, some light salon music, like classical music. Yeah. I grew up with um, some some. Uh, I want. I'm sorry to use the word gypsy, but like it's what we said, like some old gypsy songs, mm-hmm. some Jewish music, of course. Um, um, what else did we grow up with? We grew up with, yeah, like like some French songs because he knew Edith Piaf. Mm-hmm. He probably serenaded Piaf on the violin. I'm sure he was the same when he was younger. I'm absolutely certain. Yeah. And the sound I grew up with from his playing, I mean, it was not, it's not, he always, you know, he's in his 90s when he passed away. I was 96 and he was old when I was a little boy too. Mm-hmm. Um, I was 20, how old was I? 21 when he passed away. Yeah. Um, but the tone and the feeling, it's mm. really not that far away, to be honest, from violent players like Grappelli or violinists from that era. Because they all, I think they all had this influence from like the work that they were doing in cafe orchestras or small projects. Yeah. I actually wrote a post about this recently. Um, I was on the plane coming back from Australia to Europe and they had the movie Midnight in Paris. Yeah. And um, it's quite amazing because uh, for sure my grandfather knew lots of people from the artistic scene in, t- in the 20s and 30s in France. Um, but there's a scene also where the characters, they go to the Belle Epoque okay. time because it's to do with the, you know, like the which era is the most ideal era to live yeah. in. And of course, every era has got its good and bad points. Yeah. There's no such thing as the best era. And that scene actually almost had me in tears because I forgot about this. It's years since I've seen the film. Um, the two violin players playing the Bach role from Tales of Hoffman mm-hmm. on a stage is exactly the sort of stuff my grandfather did yeah. basically to make money. And like that's what he played on that violin to my grandmother. And yeah. she fell in love with him and then they were <laughs> engaged. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you, I mean, to explain, like that's, that's the sort of thing I grew up with. I grew up with this very European sounding um, music mm-hmm. in Australia. And, um, Naturally, that influences that. That's a big influence on me. It's normal, yeah. you know. And uh, I mean, I'm I'm a modern musician. I, prefer, I I like combining traditional music and jazz together very much. Yeah. 
but a, a kind of escaped influence of what I grew up with. It's 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 just very deep inside. Yeah. So how did you um how did you first find like like jazz and and stuff like that? Well, I think jazz. um I think I had an ear for harmony from the beginning. Uh-huh. I see a lot of stuff has happened and uh, a lot almost everything unintentionally. So even when I was really young. Uh, for example, I mean, I, I was studying lots and lots and lots of classical music. I wanted to be a classical musician, but I didn't realize that actually, as much as I can read, my ears do more of the work than my eyes. So a lot of what I could do was based on what I hear. Mm. And for example, we have the Tchaikovsky violin concerto. There's one, there's one uh, part in the first movement where the violin plays like this accompanying passage underneath a flute melody. Yeah. And I swear, I must have heard that a thousand times as a child. Yeah. And that's the harmony that I felt already. And I think when I was going to these weekend classes, I remember hearing, I mean, I've got vague memories when I was maybe 15, for example, hearing a big band playing. And this was in the old building. There used to be an old uh, an old building, called uh, this hall called the Bruggen Hall in Sydney at the Sydney Conservatorium. And I heard this big band, and I think my heart melted when I heard the harmonies. It's just, it was a direct instinctive feeling. Yeah, and uh, from the outset, I was just really, really, really passionate about music itself. I just adore music, really, absolutely. Grew up with this love of music and family. You know, my mother sings also. My mother's cousin's a saxophone player. It's a whole musical family thing. And, okay. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, when I went to the conservatorium after I finished school and was in first year studying music, I was a bit taken by surprise. Um, I just found, for me personally, as much as I adore classical music, that I didn't really come from the same socioeconomic background as many of the as many of my colleagues, even though I got on fine with everybody. And also, uh, it's just a cultural background. My cultural background is simply different with what I grew up with at home. And I uh, fell into bands completely by accident, actually. I mean, I, I had the ability to improvise. This mm-hmm. I could do. Um, not really jazz, improv- not really so much jazz. I could like, I could make stuff up. Yeah. I could always improvise, basically. I could have, I just don't know, I don't know why or how, but I could. And um, what happened, it's a pretty hilarious story. I, um, first year in music school, I was looking for work. As you do, because you need money. Yeah. When I went off from a super wealthy family, so I just had to make money somehow, yeah. just as you do. And I put up a sign in a laundromat with Monty Python hands, you know, those hands you see in Monty Python sketches, <laughs> yeah. uh, violinist looking for work. I have no idea where that post is. I probably have it somewhere. And, uh, you know, I just wrote the, some of the styles of music, like some, I could play some Jewish tunes, you know, mm-hmm. like, the same as my grandfather could play some. I could play Dark Eyes. I could play like a few East European songs. I, I knew like a few what we called standards, but I yeah. couldn't play them in jazz, as jazz. I just knew them. I grew up yeah, with them. Yeah. All this stuff like Autumn Leaves or um, I don't know, The Day in the Life of a Fool or stuff like this. I knew. I already knew songs. Mm-hmm. This is exactly the same. It's just passed down and like lots of uh, Jewish songs, gypsy songs, some uh, like classical, this sort of thing. And I put band work on the side as, a, as an afterthought because I'd seen a few times violin players come to play 
for example, with a youth orchestra, with you know, trying to do rock violin, and I thought it was just the lamest thing ever. It's just like <laughs> it's basically a dude who wants to be a classical violin soloist doing rock chops on violin. It made no musical sense to me. Yeah. I could see it directly through it. To me, it was just like okay, fine, it's a bit of fun, but not very musical. Sure. So I, I didn't know anything about ba- violins and bands. Yeah. I was young. You know, I was 18, 19. I was quite naive. And um, a guy made contact with me, and we made a band several years later called Monsieur Camembert. That's, I guess, like they call it chip rock. Strange term. Like, I don't know what that even means. But <laughs> uh, basically, it's a very good klezmer band mixing elements of some gypsy music, some gypsy swing, um, very eclectic, and a few of the musicians I was playing with introduced me to some really, really lovely stuff. Like I got introduced to music of Mike Patton and Mr. Bungle and mm-hmm. all the John Zorn stuff, which I adore, and to this day I adore. And also, this guy Yaron introduced me to the music of Django Reinhardt, okay, because he played with him with a guitarist in Perth named uh, Paul Bugliani. And when I heard this music for the first time, I was blown away. Mm. It's a long story how I got into jazz. It just is what it is. And um, it, obviously, um, the tone of Grappelli and the sound of this music had something in common with uh, what I was brought up with from my grandfather. It's, that's yeah. clear. Wherever the connection is, or whatever the hell it is, I don't know what it is, but it is some connection. And it just hit me very deeply. And to this day, it, it's an influence. Of course, and I adore Gypsy Swing, and I adore the music. I adore the music of Django Reinhardt, more, even more than Grappelli. I adore Django because he was innovative and interesting, and the harmony was beautiful, and his melodies were beautiful. Yeah. It was sonorous, it was clever, and everything, and it was so just forward-thinking music. I still think today, unfortunately, I think a lot of people have missed the point with this music because it's just become a big uh, cutting contest, <laughs> which is fun, but it doesn't make much musical sense. You know, like you can play 10 choruses over the same songs, but where does this go in terms of going forward? And I think, um, yeah, I mean, from from the outset, I was very interested in lots of eclectic influences and sometimes some pastiche. Uh, in this in this project, Mr. Kamembe, there was a trumpet player, and I was lucky because he taught me some elements of jazz. I learned a lot of stuff along the way. Yeah. Like I, how I said, everything was unintentional. It just happened by the by. I found this <laughs> this band by, you know, like a sign up in a laundromat for heaven's sakes. So it had no intention of playing bands. It's purely by accident. You know, it's literally how that started. And um, yeah, the trumpet player was uh, very nice. He's a very nice guy. He's an older guy. He's from Azerbaijan. Mm-hmm. Beautiful musician. And he learned, um, he learned actually lots of Cuban music from the Buena Vista Social Club guys because at the time he was in Azerbaijan, that was still Soviet Union. Uh. So they had interche- cultural interchange between Cuba and Azerbaijan. So he learned lots of okay. stuff from these guys. And he's a fantastic jazz musician. And he showed me how to transcribe uh, solos. Yeah. And he showed me also a few things, just some basic, just some basics. Yeah. You know, like... I think it's always good when there's older musicians who tell you the ropes, what to do. Yeah. And I actually had this even when I was a student in school doing some classical music. I had some older guys who, they're not too easy on you. You know, like they (laughs) criticize you, but that's good. You need that. You need people to tell you what to do. You don't need people to tell you how amazing you are. Yeah. Because you never go forward. Yeah. But it's good. And it's the same thing. He gave me very good ideas how to transcribe. 
I, mean, I did a post recently of a Charlie Parker solo I transcribed in like when was it 2000 2001 yeah and that was from him because he showed me the ropes hey what what, what when you say showed you how to transcribe could you elaborate yeah of course so for example when there's a book I think that has all the notes written down with the rhythms and the times and the time yeah. signature phrasing I don't think this is very useful to learn solos if you're a classical musician like because the Omni book well, because you're going to play like a classical musician. Yeah, of course, yeah. And I had the luck to have good ears too and instinctive feelings and natural abilities. Okay. But separate to this, anyone can hear a song on the radio and repeat it when they hear it. They yeah. hear it. Sorry, that's my computer. They can hear it and they can repeat it. So what he told me to do, and it's, it's, it's really very good, is you simply write the note heads down of a transcription. I mean, you can also use your ear to learn solos. I can do this too. But when you have something that's really <clears throat> pun, <clears throat> pun me, um, complicated, like a, you know, like a Charlie Parker solo or yeah. something from Eric Dolphy or, uh, I don't know, like even Miles or Django Grappelli, and you write down the just the note heads. Yeah. Only the notes. No rhythms. No rhythm. Nothing. Nothing. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then you then you sit there and you play along with the recording and you pick up the language because it's also a language in all this music. Yeah. No? And um, I also had my own ways of learning stuff. So another thing I'd do is I'd always play along with the recording so I didn't hear myself above the recording. It's not just myself. I actually try to absorb the sound yeah. of the of the musicians I was transcribing. So I'd pick up the sound because I've ears too. Like I pick up the sounds and the feelings. Of these musicians, which is and it's very very enjoyable way of playing of learning music, extremely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Basically. Yeah. So that's interesting. I have, I I that's not a way that I've done it. Like the write like writing it as as you go, but I imagine I guess it makes it so you're less having to struggle because like struggle like taking down a solo is difficult for loads of things. You're having to exercise your ear. And you're also having to exercise your musical memory and everything at once. And so I guess, I guess, does that sort of take away the, a little bit takes away the memory side of it. So you can really focus on the music itself. Mm. That's, that's... No, the, thing is, <clears throat> the thing is, it's like with everything, you need to cut out the distractions. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's the ticket is you need to cut out distractions. I, I, I see it for years with musicians. Like you see, them, you can see their brains ticking. Yeah. You, you literally see it. I see it all the time, especially violin player. The amount of psychosis with, with classical training or with violin <laughs> playing, I get it from a thousand miles away. You know, I saw it when I was eight or seven, whatever it was, like seeing other students, like, oh my God, it's like robots playing the same classical pieces. I do not want to be this. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, it's in the training that's too much focus on solo playing and not enough on the ensemble playing and music. Yeah. And the thing is that um, it is, it's like this worldwide, unfortunately. But it's not that it has to stay like this. And um, the thing is, when you transcribe, for example, just the note heads, the great thing is that your ears work out what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. It's hard, of course, if you, you can you can do it just by ear and learn lots of solos. But the problem is that um, not everyone can do this. And also, when it's really fast, you're going to miss things. Yeah. When you write just down the notes, your brain and your ears, they, they work out the rest. Yeah. You, know, you work it out. Yeah. Yeah. No, it makes sense. Totally makes sense. Um, yeah, cool. So it sounds like that was like your first foray into like real study of uh, specifically jazz. Yeah. 
Yes, it was. Um, and that was with an, this this trumpet player, older musician. Um, yep. Was that? And you were pl you were playing in a band with this guy. Yes. Um, well, that's great. So you were learning with, you know, whilst also performing. Exactly. Um, what was your sort of next step musically? What did you do after that? What was happening? Well, <clears throat> it was a it was. I went through quite a lot of trauma because in 2001, my father passed away. Oh. I left this band. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, he had been sick for very many years. Like, oh, it was yeah. really, really sick. It was, that was like the whole time was like also lots of crisis going on in family mm -hmm. for a long while. Um, and it was quite a few years that I was um, um, a bit lost, as yeah. you can imagine. I fell into, again, just fell into other projects. I fell into a project with a great singer, a friend of mine named Nadia Golski, who's Balkan music, and this I have natural leanings to too, yeah. of course, because same thing to do with family upbringing. And, um, yeah, there's a few projects I fell into. And um, in 2002, uh, Lula Reinhardt is a guitar player I played with for very many years, yeah. based in Koblenz, or near Koblenz. Um, he was in Sydney and, um, what happened is that, uh, a man who had brought him out to do a pop record, uh, had befriended, uh, the family of this singer, Nadia Golsky, who I was in a band with doing yeah. spoken music. And, um, he was invited to play at a very small gallery, um, run by, uh, this, by her, by her mother. And this guy said to me, yes, come meet Lula Reinhardt. And I was like, okay. I, to me, the name Reinhardt, quite frankly, didn't didn't make any difference to me. I was more happy that, quite frankly, it was a gypsy guy because I grew up with some of his music and there's some some yeah. sort of some sort of thing. I don't know which side of the family, but we're Jewish, but there's some there is some sort of thing from one t one side or the other. And I was happy, happy to go and say hello. And so it was sort of a bit surprising. This guy with long hair playing a bossa nova in this small gallery <laughs> in Paddington in Sydney. I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. Can I say that on your podcast? Yeah, I don't think we got many. Ex I don't think we got many listeners. kids. Huh? <laughs> I don't think we got many kid listeners. Okay, and if they do, that? and I said this before, if we do have any younger listeners, they're going to have to get used to these words if they're going to start playing jazz. So that's the one beautiful yes, mate. You, you <laughs> tell it. You tell it like it is. <laughs> um, but yeah, like it's it really it was, oh, so abstract. Wow, we made friends straight away, basically. It was just, hey, how are you? When we played a song, total relax, whatever, and we came and played a song, and then oh, my memory's a bit hazy, but the next day we went and played on a boat for some rich German dude. It's, yeah. like, it's like a cliche, this guy. Oh, my yeah. God. I can't remember his name even, but boy, it was like really like you can imagine <laughs> Helga the Horrible mixed with some German dude like ho, 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 <laughs> on some boat in Sydney Harbour and I don't know. Then there's a Brazilian singer, um, Gianni, and we had a really nice time. We got really drunk and then we're on this beach just jamming and this is beautiful. Yeah. It was, just a really, it was just super lovely, fun, spontaneous, great vibe, everything. Yeah. And... um. Yeah, he came, he left and like, it was such a nice vibe. And he came the next year, he came back. I don't know how the hell he came back. And I had no idea that it was back and we saw each other for one day. I said, oh, man, what the hell? Oh, this is terrible. <laughs> nice to see you, brother. What the hell? This is 2003, yeah? yeah. There's no Facebook, Skype, the YouTube, yeah. there's none of this. It's another era, you know. And so I said, well, why not come to Koblenz? Come visit me. 
Yeah. And I, I've been to Germany only one time. I've been in 2001 with a youth orchestra to to Holland. It was in Sydney. I was in no Australian youth orchestra. That was quite amazing classical experience. And I've been to Berlin one time, and that was that was that was my experience of coming to Germany. And um, it was actually several months after my father passed away too. So it was a crazy time when yeah. I was on this youth orchestra tour. So I, didn't, I didn't know Germany. It's like Oof, come to Germany. All right. And um, I was at that time also playing in a in a band. Uh, it's also hilarious. We're playing in a bookshop in Bondi uh-huh. behind a couch. This uh, this band I was playing in, and lots of rich people would come there. So we're doing lots of functions, lots of private gigs, like yeah. piles of these, you know, like rich people's houses and weddings and bar mitzvahs and blah blah blah. In 2004, for the first time in my life, I had the opportunity to have a credit card. All right. And literally, literally the moment I had the credit card, the moment, I went straight to student travel, direct, huh. <laughs> put 50 bucks yeah. on, you know, like on, on, a, on a ticket. And I went, well, you know what? I'll go to, I'll go to this festival I've heard of somewhere because you know, that was like a computer. You could look up stuff. Yeah. I found Le Cucumber in London. Yeah. I wrote to Lulu and said, hey, man, how about I come to Koblenz? Yeah. Just like this. Yeah. And um, I had no idea about summer, really, no no clue. Sylvia Rushbook, I contacted just, I think I, I used some sort of credit, some sort of phone credit at the yeah. time. I, some, one of these cards with numbers. Yeah, yeah. One of these weird cards. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember how I did it. It was some weird way. And she suggested to come to summer. So that's how I ended up coming to summer all these years. Yeah. And I went to Koblenz really just to say hello. That was all my plan was, nothing more. Yeah. And I had no clue that there was a festival that day, uh, Django's Airburn, and Schnucknack Reinhardt was there. And oh, wow. to explain, Lulu and all the Reinhardts from this region, they're basically from the family of Schnucknack Reinhardt. That's no small thing. That's a really serious, it's a really serious uh, tradition. Um. And um, yeah, Schnucknack was there and I met him and he wanted to buy my violin. <laughs> and he got up on the stage and sang and played. It was absolutely beautiful. And basically that, basically that entire family adopted me from day one. Yeah. And it's something I never forgot ever to this day. And so over the years, I just, the next year, um, I mean, I was still playing this private function band and still playing with the same musicians and you know, like by this stage, I was already, you know, like I could play some jazz and doing, yeah. um, I was doing some of my own stuff in a trio and, you know, you know, like musician, working musician, yeah. doing gigs, doing recordings, doing sessions, doing anything, any and every job possible yeah. to make money, anything. You know, just, yep, I'll do it. Yeah. You want me to come? Yep. Okay. How much? Yep. I'm there. Like, like <laughs> this, just total hide gun sort of dude and sometimes doing my own stuff. In 2005, I was umming and ahhing whether I could possibly come back or not. It's really like I'd, I had to work actually in – I'd done some theater work to pay back um, my debts from the last trip. And I went, oh, fuck it. I just go. <laughs> and so I went back and that time was crazy. I had like $8,000 in credit in, in debt and I had to do four months of theater work to pay it back. Yeah. And I managed to pay it back. It was a miracle. This, this friend of mine is who does a lot of uh, composing for big theater companies. He brought me into some a good production. Yeah, it's on the road doing that. And basically, that's that's sort of along the lines of how things have happened. Like I just and then I, as I was going back and forth to Europe, 
and spending a lot of time in Koblenz. Like I ended up in Lulo's band and playing a lot with him. Yeah. And I spent a lot of time at his place. We became very, clo- very close friends, and I'm very, very close to his family. It remains yeah. so, even though I'm here in Berlin. And um, yeah, like I, there's a few projects from even back before before I started going to Europe, um, such as Asthmatics, which is very progressive electronic music mixed with some hip hop and um, uh, Jewish music and jazz and free improv, everything, everything yeah. we feel like. That still continues, and that's one of my favorite projects. And that's my leanings are very modern, actually. Mm-hmm. There's some free improv often in my music, but that's maybe sometimes where there's some confusion in Gypsy Swing when I play. People don't realize I have a free improv inf- influence often mm-hmm. because I did a lot of free improv gigs too over the years. Yeah, no, just I don't say free improv. You know, there's free improv where you're just going, "What is this?" And there's free improv that's quite lovely, ambient, esoteric. Yeah, of course. Stuff, yeah, you know? yeah. It can also be, it can also have a bit of a jazz influence sometimes, be still free and very, very nice. You know? Yeah. But yeah, just basically working musician stuff and fell into, fell into these bands and into these projects a lot of the time and learning of older musicians. That's, that's pretty much how it's been until yeah. the last few years when it's become more me taking control of what I want to do. Uh-huh. Yeah, I always, I always, you've got, you've had, like, I always see all your albums have always had a theme. That's what I've, I've noticed. Like, yes. That I've seen. You've, you've got uh, the Samuro. Is that what is it called, Samuro? Yes. Yeah, and that was. I, I really like that. I like these, the, the idea of, of, of these themed albums because mm-hmm. so often you hear stuff like jazz or you know whatever. Yeah, jazz. Uh, and everything's there's no like the the compositions are just sort of composed and then thought about the, then the theme sort of thought of after but i felt <laughs> it feels like every time i hear all your recordings there's a theme you know be cool if you could talk about samuro and that inspiration on you sure how that's inspired sure. you throughout the years well um i mean that's also <laughs> sorry for all these crazy stories it's really endless i mean i have a <laughs> make something with all these stories because it's just it's like like books about this and my cartoons about it's so funny but um in 2010 i got a sponsorship but that was again i had uh, never planned i did a private function in sydney i have to explain this uh, to to your listeners i have to explain how this came about with this trilogy of three cities souvenirs um koblenz and samuel that's it i had in mind to do actually something in like my own project with with original compositions i wasn't sure what to do and in 2010 i did this private function as i was doing work working musician coming back and forth to europe for two three months you can imagine i have to make a lot of money to do this yeah you have to work very hard and really and um i was doing this private function a classic private function this so funny this lady she said daniel I want you to bring a gypsy pad to my function. It's like, okay, no problem. And it's called Cuisine Now. It's the most pretentious name ever. I hope she's not listening. But I mean, she's a lovely lady, but she, what, what the hell? And I go, okay, yes, yeah, sure, lovely, fine, yes. She's and probably not listening, man. Yeah, you know. <laughs> well, you know what I mean? I so, like, I, um, uh, I, uh, <laughs> I invited some musician friends of mine, an old Russian Jewish uh, saxophone player, Eddie, Eddie Bronson, who I do, and, Guitar player and yeah. bass player and an accordion player, etc. 
<laughs> we were playing. And it was like all these classic massive massive plates with tiny portions of food. <laughs> the classic expensive food thing. I mean, sometimes I guess it's nice, but it makes not much sense to me. And the guitarists got sick from the food and no one was paying attention to the music by the time we got up because yeah. they, they were drunk, they were tired, they were all the corporate people. Sure. Except for two tables at the front. And there was this guy, I can never forget it, just sh- shouting and clapping and whooping this the lady dancing on the table. was going, what is going on? Yeah. And it turned out that this guy became a good friend. It's become a good friend. Is the chief of BNP Paribas, which is this French bank. Yeah. They asked me to do an album tribute to Django Reinhardt because he's a jazz fan and a Django yeah. fan. So I had the opportunity because otherwise, quite frankly, I wouldn't have had any money to do this. Sure. It very, it really, it was very, very lucky. I mean, as it was, I was just working my ass off to make money to be able to come back and forth to Europe and not be in the atrocious debt. Mm-hmm. And um, basically, that was the first. I made this album, Souvenirs, and I thought, I don't want to just do the same everyone does. And I love many compositions from, from Django. And he specifically asked for minor swing and nuage in some compositions. So, of course, you know, because he was helping me out, I did that. But then I did a few things like Nymphaeus and I did um, uh, uh, Bolero, this Bolero from Django and a few other things that are a bit more unusual that you don't hear as much. So mm-hmm. it's all compositions basic, basically from Django. Yeah. There's some discussion whether it was from Joseph Reinhardt or, the, from, or from Scrapelli. In the end, it's just... Just leave it as Django, it's fine. But the point is the sonority of what he composed and this music is clear. You know, the playing on the general album, it's it's okay. I mean, it's very nice. It's very sweet. It's not so virtuosic always, but it's very interesting with different um, how say, different textures and different different colors within the album and, you know, change, chops and changes, lineups, there's some strings and all sorts of stuff. And one thing I did... And I've done this on every album. So I did a field recording at the end. Yeah. I'll, like, I'll get to summer and I'll get to the whole my whole thing. But what I did, but the reason why it's got a field recording is because it's recorded in Australia. That's uh-huh. the theme is that this came about because randomly I played at a private function. This guy gave me this amazing opportunity to record this album. I booked the same musicians who I've been on the gig with on yeah. principle because they were there. He saw me with them. Yeah. I didn't want to book other musicians. I could have booked, you know, the best musicians, but why? You know, like book the musicians who I booked. It's nice. And I got a guy also from Melbourne to come, Peter Baylor, to come and play with us. It was nice. And um, I booked some other people, you know, like some other people, uh, like some string player friends. I can't list all the names because it's just too crazy, you know. You can look up the albums and see the names. Everything is listed. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and so this field recording is hilarious because it was an experiment done by the other guitar player, Nigel Date. It's the brother of Ian Date, who lives in Sydney. With I know a that name. I definitely know Nigel, that name. Nigel, the Date brother. You know Ian Date? I think I, I know that name. Ian is a, we'll talk about him with the Coblenz album because Ian is a legend, really, in terms of jazz, the knowledge of jazz harmony is amazing. But anyway, the brother, there's this recording with like, I don't know, some hand recorder or something, and we were up in the hills somewhere yeah. outside of Sydney. And when we listen, when he listened back to the recording, it had the sound of cicadas, like really loud cicadas. And so he had some version, some plugins with an old version of GarageBand. He's lost, he lost the settings ages ago, and it sounded exactly like a Django and Grappelli recording. <laughs> and so that was Souvenirs, the piece. That's what it was, as a field recording. So I plonked that at the back of 
the studio recordings I did, called the album Souvenirs, and that's has the sound of Australian outback somehow because recording Australian. That's the first album. Mm-hmm. And so you can see what I'm getting to is like with Cold Blends, that's quite deep. That was all my original compositions. I recorded that again with musicians from Australia to yeah. showcase how good musicians are there. That was with Ian. Yeah. Who's the sort of person who sees a, who sees a melody and harmonizes the melody? You actually can find the actual harmonies that suit the melody. So it's beautiful harmonies. My melody. I have this stuff inside, but I can't always articulate harmony so well because I play by ear. I can't always read chord charts. Even I play. I'm an ear player. Mm-hmm. Um, and that again, that 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 album is original compositions. That's to do with a you know, few things. That that basically chases the. <clears throat> the biography of Django Reinhardt. It's to do with the Reinhardt family in Koblenz. It's to do with um, uh, Cynthia and Roma and Jewish history in Europe. It's to do with European history. It's very, de- it's very deep. Yeah. And um, the last track is Koblenz, and that's a field recording recorded on Lulu Reinhardt's balcony with Lulu. <laughs> you can hear the Skype turn on <laughs> one point on the on the album. <laughs> As I say, and what happened is I got further assistance to make um, to make albums from. From, through this friend of mine who works yeah. at this bank, I didn't intend this. It was extremely kind. He just simply likes me and wanted yeah. to help me. And um, I mean, I needed that help actually if I wanted to make anything further. It's very yeah. expensive making studio recordings. And so it's the same with the third album, which is Samurai. And originally, I had in mind to record with city friends from from Holland, like as Lolo Maya, for example. But he was busy. And then I thought, you know, I play with the Reinhardts for years, yeah, really for so many years, and I should record with them because there's a studio that's available that, that that's easy to access and have fun and record some ideas of mine, and it's a sort of <clears throat> happy romp through a few different things. And their lone track is to do with being alone. When I came, mm-hmm. to, like, sort of a fantasy of when I came to France by myself, two thousand four, for example, and like, where the fuck am I? <sighs> Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, you come to one of these big stations. I think that was my first time to Paris. It was. And you come to one of these big train stations. There's a million people everywhere. And there's, there's, there's just, like, walls of noise everywhere. Yeah. You know? So it's to convey humanistic feelings of what it – I think in the third album, it's very deeply humanistic to do with what affects every single person. That's why <clears throat> in the album notes, there's these liner notes, with, which is a bit like prose, to do with uh, – a sensation everyone can feel, and also to do, of course, to do with Samuel the campsite, and then the last track is a field recording of me pizzicatoing a little tune in Samuel. Mm-hmm. So you see, like every time I have like a field recording from the actual place, yeah. So it's it's actual, and it's yeah. an actual feeling. It's very very um uh, how do you say it's very uh, conceptual. A lot yeah. of stuff I do. Very. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I love it. Um. But Samuel had a big impact on you then, like sure. Samoa. Sure. Yeah, it definitely did a, did on me. I know for sure it did with me. When I first found, found like got there, I'd been studying music, and I was just like, ah, oh, no, actually, you know, <laughs> studying music. I don't know. It just sort of sucked the life out of it a little bit. Not fully. I got loads out of it, but it sucked the life out of it. And suddenly, like the life was just sort of, just sort of injected back into it as soon as i got into as soon as i got to samurai and we're just playing everyone's just playing this you know this swing or this jazz or whatever you want to call it Mm. outside happy 
you know and it's mm. it was like uh yeah i don't know it's like being in the playground <laughs> when you're definitely no that's a very good description it's quite amazing definitely that campsite and that region has some magic i don't know what it is it's it's it is one of those places it's you know like it's a very special place the place itself seems to affect people yeah you know and then, then I, I think if you went to that if that place when there's no one there you'll still feel something there yeah have this thing. yeah definitely yeah and <clears throat> um, what so uh what would you uh what advice would you give to someone who's uh, trying to make the jump from playing like classical or Western classical music, not improvised music, to playing jazz or improvised music? I would say firstly start slow. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are very impatient and they want directly to have something. Start slow. Yeah. Um, I think um, one thing I've told a few people that probably is useful is to – get a chord chart uh -huh. and try playing first the root no, if, if you can I mean today it's quite easy with a phone you know you can even use an eye rule book and play yeah. the chords you know yeah <clears throat> and play the root root notes along mm -hmm. with the recording mm -hmm. I mean I haven't done this <laughs> I'm just giving advice about what's something <laughs> I haven't done I haven't done I just use my ears to play but it's sort of logical and then you play the thirds yeah the chords and then if you can the fifths yeah which is very hard, and then etc. That that's the first exercise because that hones in your ear. Yeah. <clears throat> the next thing I think that's very important. I'm really really strong about this is um not to rely too much on anything written. Sure. To learn how to play outside of Western classical because the thing is with Western classical it's all to do with the notes and you must this and you must that it's really like heavy psychology you should you must you must do this which is makes sense with this music you know, yeah. you're meant to and if you're in an orchestra you're part of a unit and you know that's a whole different technique of playing music too like if you're in an orchestra you do not play like a soloist it's ridiculous yeah. play it's part of a section same part of the bows same fingers all this sort of stuff mm-hmm so, I mean, that's a very different psychology when you're playing improvised music or playing, um, I mean, we're talking about jazz here. Yeah. If you're talking specifically to be able to play jazz. Yeah. We're talking about folk yeah, music jazz. jazz. Um, I would start with some simple solos and what I was talking about, transcribing just the note heads. Because mm -hmm. if you're a classical player, the most people can read and write. The most. The mm -hmm. most. The ones who can't then just use the ears to learn some phrases just yeah. by... But we're talking about classical, yes, of course, you can read. You, so you write the note heads down. It doesn't matter if it's just a simple phrase. It doesn't matter how, if it's really small and you spend ages on it. But do it and just bit by bit by bit. Yeah. It will take time. When you, when you, when you transcribe solos, like it was very weird. Like I transcribed all this stuff. It was two years later when all this stuff came out, yes. all these phrases and crazy ideas. And ears develop. In a, and your brain works in a different way mm. to how we can understand it. Yeah. Stuff could just simply naturally comes out. But the more you work on your ear training, the more you work on um, being able to, I guess, um, transcribe and learn some learn some phrasing. Uh, it depends also which jazz you want to play. Sure. Uh, my my perspective is that I think it's always better. To start from the beginning, so you learn the old, you know, you learn the old music. Yeah. Then you you move your way up towards modern. Because if you don't have the old music before, then you don't have the ground. Mm -hmm. that's, that's another thing. Also, as I some of the uh, years, I ended up playing in a Buddy Bolden band, playing 
the jazz music from 1890 something till 1910 and and playing proper tango music all this stuff relates to one another and when you can look at the roots of the music and learn about this stuff and move further on this uh-huh. is very nice because then this gives you a very strong foundation for playing more modern stuff also yeah yeah Definitely. i mean i i 100 agree with that but then i i'm never sure if that's just because i really like listening to old old music and mm. uh I don't know. I think some people don't have that that opinion. Um, they have the opinion mm-hmm. that, like, you know, we should be always striving to do something new all the time. Everything is about doing something new, and uh, that means that you that they maybe perhaps leave leave behind the old stuff. You know. But you know, it's more a feeling. I think um, that's what I'm saying. Is that like if you listen to all the great master musicians, yeah, all of them, all the great ones we look up to. All of those guys could play blues. All of those guys could really play simple stuff. Yeah. They all knew the traditional music from back to front. They could play Dixieland. Yeah. They could play the old music. Yeah. So they played as modern. And if I can play really super far out personally, I yeah. can. There's a lot I want to learn. I want to learn for the rest of my life. I, I haven't had the chance to really study as of the last mm-hmm. few years because I've been working too much. Yeah. But I adore studying. I adore I recently have all my music in order. I can finally start studying again. It's like a miracle. Yeah. Um, but you know, like the thing is when you have those foundations, I can't explain it. It's like a, it's like a grounding. It's like a feeling in the playing. Yeah. And I think it affects also the soul of the music. The soul of the music is important. And it may be the, maybe it doesn't seem obvious that the listeners notice that, but they do. Mm-hmm. Because they hear it, they respond. They respond to what they hear. They hear the depth yeah. in the music. And at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself what you're actually doing. Yeah. What are you doing when you're playing music? Mm. Now, what are you transmitting? What's the point of what you're doing? And all those great musicians, and there's so many of them, and not just in jazz, in many traditions, they start from the basics and they move their way up. Yeah. And that's that's um, discipline also. Mm. Of course, you can just play modern, modern, modern. I love modern music. It's my, that's sure. my direction. That's one hundred percent my direction. Actually, I just last night did my album release concert with this new album, Tono. That's the whole point: is that it goes through. That's the new one. That that goes through the history of my grandfather's instrument that was carried everywhere, and then from when he passed away in nineteen ninety eight, suddenly switches to the present. Mm-hmm. And it's free jazz. It's free improv. It's modern. Yeah. It's really it's really I'm mixing like a, a like this Romanian Hungarian riff that I sort of composed. You know, it's it's a riff yeah. like a walking riff. It's a riff from the, this track called 1921, which is set during the time my grandfather and his two friends flitted across every border. You know, <laughs> in Central Europe with this instrument, he had his instrument with him, and it has this riff of like this walking over the mountains riff, so that the violin's still walking ahead, mm-hmm. like this imagery. Yeah, but the thing is that underneath is all this history and all this foundation you know like within the music and that just makes it richer and for a listener i think this is nicer they 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 feel this richness they respond to it in jazz i think you hear that with the musicians who have that tradition it's in their yeah. tone in their the way they carry themselves it's nice yeah basically. yeah i agree man that's great so yeah. the new album do you want to talk a little bit more about that sure it's uh, it's a lot. To, it's a lot to get your head around. Um, I was brought up with this instrument. Uh, my grandfather was extremely casual about it. Mm-hmm. 
Like he, like I said, the violin case was always open. He yeah. Had these two violins, one which my mum bought him, and he had this one. <sighs> yeah. And um, this violin from Tsolnok. And um, originally, I was planning to do an album just based on a set list of his. I've got some old set lists where he, you know, like has some songs which he'd play. This this eclectic mix of songs. Yeah. And I started really thinking about the stories I was brought up with about the instrument. I thought, well. Why not do an album about the actual instrument? Yeah, it's to do with the instrument where it's been. So it's it's through the eyes of the instrument, so to, so to say. Yeah, and, um, it's like it's really quite amazing. It's so uh, the beginning of it. It begins with open strings like a clock. It's to do with time. Yeah, and uh, this this melody I composed to do with the instrument. Um, it was quite hard to compose for this because it's quite diatonic. A lot mm -hmm. of the music, it's, uh, the second track, Air, was to do with the brother who died playing. The story is he played Brahms violin concerto when he was 18, then died two days later of the Spanish flu. So, composed this very virtuosic classical thing. And this is recorded, by the way, with a jazz quartet with drums, bass, violin, piano. Mm -hmm. So, it's unusual playing music like that. And then the third track, 1921, is this crazy Hungarian Romanian romp mixed with jazz, like. It's quite long. That, yeah. That's about the time when they fled from border to border. Then um, I chose a song to try and describe the time when my grandfather was in Marseille because, quite frankly, I do not what, know what music he played. I can only base it on the sound he and of the style he played to me and to everyone around him yeah. and what I, grew up, what I grew up with. But what he specifically played in... France, I don't know. I can imagine he played swing. I do know he used to go see the Hot Club of France. Yeah. I do know he knew Piaf. I do know he knew lots of artists and musicians, famous people from that time. Like Just like we know people today, it's really not yeah. that amazing. Sure. It's the times, actually. It's, sure, it's like, yeah. Um, and I know he met Django a few times, too. Um, he told me so. Um, but, yeah, I found this composition... Uh, by a man named Henri Alibert and it's called Bonjour, Bonsoir, Adieu, Marseille and that made sense because from 1938 my grandfather had to flee France when there was the German invasion and Vichy government um, and basically I, I took this piece and it's got a bit of melancholy and a bit of darkness in it, and I'm sure my grandfather actually knew this guy because yeah. he was from Marseille you know he played, my grandfather was a, was an engineer, but he was in the artic, artistic scene. He played yeah. music also. So people knew each other. Sure. It's just like how it is. So he fled three times over the Pyrenees, and I'm not sure if the violin was in Marseille or if it ended up in North Africa through a friend of his. I actually I actually starting to suspect he took the damn violin with him. Yeah. It was just a student violin. There's nothing so, you know, it's just this tool, basically. Yeah. Like a hammer, as I said. And anyway, he fled over the Pyrenees and was caught by Franco's police and was put in a jail in Algeria. <laughs> and the Red Cross inspected the jail and he escaped and ended up in Morocco. Yeah. Ended up in the, I think he already had contact with French resistance already, mm -hmm. I'm sure of it, back in the late 30s or, you know, when the Germans invaded, when, yeah. when the Nazis invaded, sorry. And, um, um, yeah, he became very high up in the ranks of French resistance. Yeah. Turns out he was a, actually a chief something like the chief of intelligence in, in, in North Africa uh -huh. in regular contact with the Gaulle and then everything got blown up by U-bombers and then he had to then he was thrown into the English army so in, in this time with all this chaos obviously the violin was somewhere 
<laughs> it is the same instrument. It did get to North Africa. I do suspect he took it with him because the violin has Solnok written inside the violin. It looks the same as the violin in the old photo of him. Yeah. It makes sense, the whole thing, you know? Yeah. It, it was born in Solnok, the city. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? I got it checked out in Hungary and they said 20s. It, it all checks out the whole yeah. story. So um, uh, there. So I made Le Chante de Partisan, which is this famous resistance song, and North Africa to try and convey the. This is sort of uh, imaginary stuff, but to convey the magic that the violin escaped through everything and survived somehow miraculously yeah. through some miracle. Yeah. <clears throat> and also to allude to the destruction of everything back in Europe, mm-hmm. in the North Africa track, particularly. There's all this chaos um, alluded to. It's very it's free improv basically. It's all free improv and it's very dark. And there's a violin theme that comes the the same violin theme from the first solo track. Yeah. Through compose this album, and that alludes to the destruction back in Europe of of you know where the violin came from. Everyone was killed and everything destroyed and war etc. And violin North Africa. And it's followed by the Bach roll, by the from the Tales of Hoffman, um, which. I mentioned my grandfather played um, for my grandmother. Yeah. My mother told me he played this on this piece of music. Uh, sorry, that's my computer. <laughs> Actually, I let me turn don't... let me turn this off. I don't think I heard anything. Okay. Um. Uh, and uh, then I was trying to. Then I was thinking, well, how on earth can I convey what happened next? Because uh, he he met my grandmother, um. And um, they got married through context of his after the war. Um, he was working in Morocco because he'd been there. He, he was high up there in the resistance, what have you. Mm-hmm. And um, they had a daughter, my mother. And, and when my mother was about seven, uh, and also before that, six or so, there was a lot of upheaval in, in uh, Morocco. There was uh-huh. uprising against French colonial rule. It was a French colony. Yeah. And uh, my grandfather was working in Tangier and he had uh, an incident where two bullet holes were fired into his back window and smashed the back window. Mm. And this guy, you have to remember, he fled from, was left Hungary at the age of 18, walked for two years basically. You know, mm-hmm. for two years walked and what have you to France, end up in mm-hmm. France, then had fled, fled France and was in constant conflict and then living in Morocco and again conflict is too much. So um, he went directly home, and um, um, my grandmother's brother uh, suggested to go to Australia. My grandfather said, yes, we go to Australia because my grandmother's sister yeah. lived in Australia with her husband and her children. And so they got a boat and went to Australia. So I was with my mother, who was seven. My mother's born in Casablanca. And I was thinking, how can, on earth can I convey the instrument went to, of all places, Australia, the other end of the world? Yeah. So first I recorded from the radio, like the sound of a didgeridoo. I listened often to the Koori radio. It's an indigenous station. I love this. I thought, nah, it's a bit cliche. It's not really, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. You know, this is sort of how I do things. It's often very off the cuff. And then I, um, just like I'm out in the bush, hearing the, hearing the nature. Yeah. Hearing the cicadas and hearing the birds and all this sort of thing. That's a sound. Because that's something you know. It's from this faraway land. That's sonic. And so then you come to the sound of Australia. Yeah. You know? And then you know, okay, the violin's gone a far away. This is what I mean with field recordings. The use of field recordings is fascinating because 
We all experience this. Everyone experiences this some way. You hear sounds and you respond to them instinctively. You mm-hmm. hear these sounds, these natural sounds, and directly like, <gasps> and music at the end of the day is just sound. It is just sound. Yeah. That is tones. Of course. Just yeah. like just like language. Language is tones. It's no different to music is tones. Yeah. You respond to the tones. You respond to the feeling of the tones, the intent of the tones, the meaning behind the tones. Even if you don't realize it, subconsciously you respond to it. Mm. So the next piece, I called it Mr. Fishman, which the musicians made fun of and I did too because it sounds funny. But that was my grandfather's name was Zoltan Fishman. Yeah. They had a different spelling in Hungary and a different spelling in France. And in Australia, he made it very simple because in Australia, you can imagine what people would be like trying to spell F-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Yeah. It's, you know, impossible. So he made it F-I-S-H-M-A-N. Yeah. He had a nice life, a simple life, not an exor- exorbitant, amazing life, um, like with the same things he had in Morocco because he did very well there. He made good business in Australia. It was much harder. Um, his wife, my aunt, my Oma, she worked in a, selling fur coats, and he worked as a taxi driver. But he started playing violin, um, classical violin at the age of 76. Uh-huh. Always dressed beautifully, always smelling good. They're just he liked to find things in life with what he had. Yeah, you know, not rich, but with the with the they were very poor actually. But with what they had, they had some help from my my grandmother's brother, who was very wealthy, living mm-hmm. in Switzerland. And he was, it was through him actually that uh, my grandmother actually survived the war. She was, she herself had um, fled from Vienna where she was brought up, even though she was from Poland. And mm-hmm. they'd walked, they walked from Vienna to the middle of Poland, then got safe passage to a ship at the north of Poland to Morocco. Yeah. Long story. So he also helped my grandparents out in Australia. But Harry Cody had a nice life, and so I composed this piece of music that had to do with him, that he played the violin. Mm-hmm. It has to have. It has to have to do with that. It has to sure. have, have something to do with him. And what, another thing is that progressively the album gets more modern. Progressively. Okay. A little bit more modern with the time. Yeah. Then following this is um, La Famille, which is, I use French words because even though unfortunately I don't speak so much French, just a little tiny, tiny bit. The language at home of my grandparents was French and German. And they yeah. mostly speak French to my mother. They all spoke French. Yeah. But La Famille. Mm-hmm. And that's obvious. That's to do with kids and, and grandkids. And that's a bit pizzicato melody like a music box. Okay. And people last night kept on saying to me how much I love this. It's actually weird enough hard to play. Right. There's some weird chords. I just made it up. It's sort of spontaneous. Yeah. And then this is followed by Tronkula Sydney, mm-hmm. which has to do with an interview my grandfather did at the age of 93. Yeah. Um, where he was asked why Australia. And his answer was that it was peace there. Tronkil. Mm-hmm. And after everything this man went through, I mean, he didn't even mention the violin in the interview because what he went through, what he saw and what he went through in his life was, it's, it's really, really, really extraordinary. Yeah. And lots of people, lots of people have amazing stories. It's not saying this is so like above others. It's nothing to do with that. It's just pure circumstance. He just happened to be a guy who unwittingly saw a lot of very, very significant things in the 20th century. It just, he, he unfazed went through it all the violin he happened to have with him he loved to play he didn't give a shit about where it came from or that it survived stuff it 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 was not important he didn't even play that violin on his on this on his interview he played another violin the other one yeah couldn't give a shit it's just yeah violin whatever yeah so i composed something to do with this this it's very introspective very introspective piece of music um 
time my phone is going off. Everything's going off today. After yeah. my album, everyone's ringing me two, every two seconds to say hello. It's very Great. sweet. It's like circus here. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, one thing I did that's very, it's quite deep, is that the the track finishes, it's, it's quite classical. It, it combines themes of Erdner, the second track, to do with this, so it's also got to do with the brothers. Yeah. And it finishes with the pizzicato, the open strings, just yeah. like the first track, Solnok. And this is symbolic of the violin case being shut for 20 years. Mm. Okay. In fact, with the same strings, it had the same <laughs> strings on it for 20 years. I had no idea. He played it till the day he died. It was 96 when he died. Yeah. Born in 1902, he died in 1998. He serenaded the people at the nursing home yeah. the night before he passed away. Yeah. He was so clever till the end that we couldn't find his wallet when he'd passed away. He'd hidden it because he didn't trust the nurses <laughs> where he where he was. He was a survivor to the end. Really very, very witty man. Very quiet, very understated. Never made a big thing about all the things he went through. I had to I asked him some questions when I was a little bit older, but it was hard getting information out of him. He was very yeah. understated. Very. And so that was that's Tonkila Sydney. And that combines these themes. And then it's meant to shock the listener. Then uh-huh. <laughs> this this is crazy. This, I was living in Wedding in Berlin. Berlin. What? Berlin. Uh-huh. 2018 with this violin that was in Australia for however many years. I brought it back to Berlin uh, in October 2017. Yeah. Unreali- not realizing, in fact, that was literally around the same time my grandfather was in probably Vienna or fled Vienna. Yeah. It's a, what is it, like, yeah, 100 years later? No, 98 years later. <laughs> 98 years later. <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah. Uh, I'd already recorded the track, and it's very modern. It's free jazz. It's modern, modern, urban, you know? Yeah. And it combines the this walking bass line from this Romanian, Hungarian-Romanian line from uh, the 1921 track. And um, the field recording at the beginning, I was, I was editing my music because I edit – I produce my own music, mm-hmm. not mixing. This is really something I think is another art, but editing yeah. I do myself of my albums. And I was sitting editing in my small room in Vitting. I was living in at the time. It's like really like dingy small room. Yeah. And the window was open and I heard, I heard it's incredible hearing these kids playing outside and the sound of birds and the sound of church bells. I was just like, what the hell? I have to record this. So I just yeah. perched <laughs> my stuff like sort of really like uncomfortable and recorded this and used that as a field recording to convey the moment the time yeah. I was currently in Yeah. and the point is that the violin went through all these things when you look at this violin it just looks like a normal instrument you would never know it being carried to all these crazy places it's insane Yeah. and just goes further in the future It's it, I'll play it how I play it in the moment so it's not 2018 for example, last night is 8th of May, 2019. Yeah. It's do with the moment. And it's the story of the instrument and now. Yeah, man. And, and then with an epilogue in this interview, this is hilarious. In the epilogue, you know, I was saying this whole time in this interview, like I grew up with this, my grandfather serenading everybody and serenading me. Um, ah, there's this piece, Estrelita. He played this on his violin. Yeah. On the other, on, on not the violin from Sonok, the the Bohemian violin mum had bought him. And I heard this piece, I was like, oh my God, that piece. I've heard that my whole life. He always yeah. played this piece. I don't know why he liked this piece, this Mexican 
love song that Heifetz had played. Heifetz had played him in E. My grandfather, of course, played in another key in D. Okay. <laughs> With a little trill here or there. He always, yeah, he'd also put a little trill in here and there. That's yeah, another yeah. thing. Always. There's little things, these little tiny inflections. I, I grew up with this. I did. A, I also played on this interview. I was 18, and I was putting trills in. I never had any clue what I was doing. Yeah, yeah. It was pure instinctive, whatever. It was really natural. I never learned how to do the traditional music or how to do the specific something specific. It was just very organic. And so I thought, okay, I have to record this piece. This is this piece. Oh my god! I feel uh, this is a field recording thing. And so my plan was to go to Solnok, the city, because uh-huh. I have a Hungarian passport. I have relatives still in Hungary from my father, my uh-huh. late father, who was also from Hungary, was born in Budapest. Um, and uh, I spent a lot of time in Budapest, a lot of friends there, but I went to Solnok. And uh, it was very cold. When I went there, it was like one or two degrees. And I was extremely embarrassed. There was this big bridge, and I was hiding under the bridge to see if no one would see me when I was playing. Yeah. I opened the case to try and play. Started to play at a Tascam recorder. Too cold. It was like my fingers froze. I was like, okay, this doesn't work. And I packed my case completely, but how do you say, befuzzled, and then went back to Budapest. And I thought, what can I do? And so I uh, changed my bus ticket for the next day to the evening. Mm-hmm. Um, did a field recording, like sort of, as you say, field recording in the room I was staying in, which happened to be around the corner from the Franz Liszt Academy, which is most likely where Ernu had studied with that violin, I would dare say, if you yeah. played Budapest Opera Houses. These institutions are all connected. It makes a lot of sense and probably would have studied with Ubay, who was a good student, because Ubay was the main violin teacher yeah. in that time. It's simply these people were around. And so I made a field recording in the room and then went back to Tsolnokas, but maybe nine degrees, 10 degrees. Yeah. Went walking along the river, the Tiza River, yeah. along the banks, because then it was possible. It was raining the day before, and I'd been in really cold, so I had to be under the bridge. And um, it was all muddy and disgusting, full of dreck. dreck. And um, my jeans were covered in mud. I crouched extremely uncomfortably on the ground, so I wouldn't just be completely covered in mud on my ass or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Played this Estrelita along the riverbanks and recorded also the sound of the nature and then combined that together. Amazing. It was this beautiful, beautiful field recording with the instrument that was made in Solnok, in Solnok, with this piece I'd heard my whole life on the violin, which is how I'm a violin player because my grandfather always serenaded me and other people also with this piece all the time, which I'd, you know, like the moment I heard it, I went, oh, God, this piece. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's super personal and a real odyssey. It's, it's quite quite fun describing it and yeah, man. playing it live and combines all these different influences and like all the disciplines that I've, uh, I've picked up along the way over the years. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man, I really like that. I think it's great that it's so personal that your album, all your albums, but especially this one, it seems that they always come from a very personal place and it is something that, you know, you don't always get it in jazz. It can just sometimes be, hey, I've written these things and, you know, because I wanted to write something in complicated. But this is okay. Or, but this is okay. Of course it is. But it's nice to see uh, mm. the other, you know, that. It's good. I think the great jazz musicians themselves um, were also very personal what they wrote and very thoughtful. Yeah. 
I mean, that's that's something I, I I think if you want my honest opinion about where a lot of music is going today, that's something that I do have issues with. Is that I think that people don't take enough of a leaf from the great masters, in, okay. uh, in terms of really like in terms of a sense of saying something, because uh-huh. they were really they were really out there to say something. You don't always have to say something. You know, today a lot is to do with entertainment. I, I think this is fine. Entertainment's entertainment. You know, mm-hmm. people don't need to be feeling something deep every single time. Sure. But to have substance is a separate thing. Sure. I think you always want to have substance, regardless of whether it's pure entertainment or whether it's something deep. It, it, you know what I mean? Substance yeah. is something intangible. That's what I mean about the roots. And I feel like if you're not putting substance into the music, you're somehow not fulfilling a responsibility as an artist to convey something that's necessary for the human condition. Yeah. You know, and um, that, that's just my thing. I mean, me, myself, in terms of music where I'm going to go next, it could be very different. Yeah. You know, like, I chop and change what I do. Yeah. Um, but I think that uh, today in music, there's a lot more musicians, a lot more people wanting to do their thing. We live in a very instant gratification world. Yeah, man. We all, we all know it. We, we all know this. And I don't think you can change people, not seeking to change the world, you know, these lofty ideals. But in a very subtle way to gently bring something of substance to people, yeah, this I do want to do. And like also in Gypsy Swing, I have my own longer term ideas what I want to do in music and in my own concepts because also in terms of playing just straight jazz, this I want to do too with this instrument because I like jazz very much. Mm-hmm. I love standards also. I like, I like playing jazz very much. Mm-hmm. But just... So long as it's not wank, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Because when it's wank, this is boring. When it's, you know, this is, you can see Ingve Malbstein, that's cool. With his shredding guitar thing, that's fine. <laughs> but it's like shredding instrument stuff, Just it just gets a bit lame all the time, nothing but shredding. It's like, well, okay, fine. You can play your guitar great. Okay, you can play your violin great. But how many people can do all this stuff? Yeah. You know, who else is going to play the most virtuosic thing? It's, to me, it's, it's really empty. Yeah. And not only is it empty, I think it destroys music a bit. That that's that's my point. Is I, I feel uh, that hurts me a little bit because I go, oh, this is hurting music. Yeah, it's hurting. It's hurting something that is necessary for people, even if they don't realize it. And yeah. uh, that's that's where my issue is sometimes yeah. with this. I think when there's some fun and it's just in the moment, that's a different thing too. You know, yeah, on, on yeah. The flip side of the coin. You know what I mean? It's just to do with a balance between, you know, this endless chopping out thing, which just, just yeah. gets tiresome. And, you know, like when, when it's just like, it doesn't matter. It's just like something in the moment. You know? Yeah, man. I agree with you. Um, yeah. Hey, um, yeah, I think that uh, wraps it up, man. It's really great to listen to your the story of, well, how you played and also the story of your album as well. It's great. Thanks. Yeah, Thanks nice, for nice, doing this. Real pleasure. Nice to see you and nice to chat to you. Yeah. Well, are you going to be in somewhere this year? Unfortunately not, by the looks of things. Yeah. Because um, my mum is going to be here in Berlin at exactly the same time that you know people come last week, June, and first week, July. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, okay. uh, I, over, the, over the years, I have sometimes come for a few days, but that's really exhausting because then you yeah. come, high by. I'd much prefer to spend some proper time with friends when I come over. So this year I might skip it and um, just spend some time in Berlin yeah. at home. 
you know, and yeah. um, oh, you know, be Fair there enough, next man. year. You gonna be there this year? Uh, I think so. I don't know. <laughs> I'm the same. I've got. I've just. I've basically got lots of things surrounding that that time period, and mm. just try to work out if I want to do the whole run in and run out thing or not. It's pretty hectic. Also, yeah. getting there, I always find getting to summer is yeah, amazing. It's, just, it's, it's, it's incredibly. <sighs> so it's <laughs> if you go by transport, you know, you get the, you get the, you get the air to where is it to bloody, not Milan to Fontainebleau, and then you get yeah. that bus, and you're yeah. just waiting forever for that bus. Yeah. And it's an ordeal. Yeah. I know and however, mean. however, I get to um, to France from. From Germany, I find actually overnight buses are best, uh, just because you can sleep on the bus and then you wake up in the middle of the city and you save yourself. Yeah, I know. Having to go on lots of transport, but um, you know, like the whole thing of getting there, just it takes enormous amount of time. Even if you drive, it takes a long, long yeah. time. And then to say hello to lots of people was um. And then bye again. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a fan of this. I don't. I don't. I like to spend time with friends. Yeah. I, 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 we'll, we all know each other for years and. I really, and even then, when you spend a week there, it's hard. Sometimes there are people you don't see for whatever reason, and then it's like, oh, hi, bye, and it always yeah. feels shit. You know, yeah, like yeah. I spend proper time with people. Yeah. No. Well, so, man, if you ever want to come to London, or you are coming to London for a gig or whatever, let me know. Yeah, let definitely. Know. I'd love to. I hope it's easy in the future to come over. Yeah. I hope it's a hassle. Yeah. Has it already started, the Brexit? <sighs> man. No one no even knows. On. No, but no one does. So even <laughs> like, yeah. nice, no, cool. I mean, I, it's, I have literally no idea. We've all, it's been like, I don't know how long, years of talking about it. No one knows. And uh, I'm, just, yeah, I've sort of lost interest. I'm just gonna, yeah, I, what am I, what am I gonna do? Just gonna wait and see, <laughs> see what they do. Exactly. I don't know, man. Well, I've got the. I wonder. I've got the Australian passport and the Hungarian passports, and maybe they're like. I don't have no. Yeah, I don't know. I'd love to come to London again. I've 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 talked about it. It's just a question of when. Yeah. In between jobs and stuff. Yeah. Cool, man. All right, I better go. I'll see you soon. Yeah. All the best. Yeah. Bye. Ciao, ciao. So thanks so much for listening to the Jazz Violin Podcast. I have been Matt Holborn and you have also been listening to Daniel Weltlinger. Uh, yeah, I hope you've enjoyed it. I don't know if I've got much to say other than the usual you know, that thing I do when I tell you to like and subscribe and share. Sharing's good because it, it makes... Uh, it just it just gets it around a little bit more. Share it with your friends. If you have friends who like to listen to um, dull-voiced violinists talking to uh, less dull-voiced violinists about jazz improvisation, then send this their way. Um, I don't know what else to say, really. I have a couple of things coming up myself. I'm recording a new album, or well, actually not an album. I'm recording a bunch of songs in the studio with some of my favorite musicians uh, who play in the, the Django style, uh, who are based in London. So we've got this new band called the London Django Collective, 
and we're about to go into the studio so a lot of my time and uh, effort has been going into that uh, next month's pod I've got a bunch of different people ready to to um, interview for next month's podcast but I think next month is going to be Baju Bat I'm really excited about chatting with him because he's a super amazing player and I reckon he's got a lot to say about um, learning as well I'm going to leave you now with a track from John Garner who's a London based jazz violinist uh, this is a track from a duo album he recorded with a guitarist Toby Carpenter um, the album's called Odd Socks and this track is called When You're Away. Hope you enjoy. Thanks very much for listening.
Thank you.